Well, good morning, Life Fellowship. It's great to see you all today. Happy Mother's Day to all of our moms. And uh, it was, you know, it's fun this morning watching a lot of you all come in and some of you stopping at the photo booth outside and seeing all the kids uh, gather around mom and getting that picture taken. And as one whose kids have all grown up and flown the nest, I remember these were sweet days. Uh, a little bit of panic on dad's part, making sure that the kids uh, got everything they were supposed to get and to be able to uh, uh, make sure that it uh, got wrapped and everything on time. But it's a, it's a sweet day, and I hope that everyone, and by the way, if your mom isn't here, I hope that you will definitely go and call her today. I think that's an important uh, thing you can do if you don't live close to your mom. I already called mine last night. I'm going to call her again today. I think most of you know I'm, I'm a self-proclaimed mama's boy. I love my mom. And... Uh, she listens to this. I won't tell you how old she is, but you can look at me and realize that uh, she's a little further down the road than I am. But uh, happy Mother's Day to all of you. Thank you so much for the ministry you have at home and the ministry that you have in Life Fellowship. So two weeks ago, we finished up our month of emphasis for missions. And I just want to say I am so encouraged and so gratified by uh, so many of you have contacted me in the last couple of weeks and expressed a renewed interest in missions and all that that involves. And I want you to know that uh, as, as of uh, this morning, we are at about $96,500 on that $100,000 um, uh, commitment that we hope to make uh, above and beyond our regular giving to missions. Um, I, I know we'll hit 100000 because I know someone here right now at this very moment is just so burdened and so passionate about missions and you see that number so close that before you leave today, you're going to drop that check in that, that box or a commitment card in that box before you leave. And next week, we'll be able to say 100000 Was that subtle? Because I was trying for subtlety. Did that work? Uh, but uh, anyway, uh, we have got so many good things. But by the way, just like yesterday, uh, we, we have reactivated our Heads, Heart, and Hands trailer uh, that we uh, built a few years ago as a special emphasis. And we had some of our men go. And yesterday, they helped Pastor Trey who uh, has moved here to be on our staff, uh, but has not been able to move into his house because he bought a fixer-upper. And, um, and so they were over there trying to help. You know what fixer-upper means, don't you? That's Greek for money pit. Um, but anyway, they, they, <laughs> he's over there working all the time. Every uh, time he's not here, he's working over there. But uh, no, they, they went over and helped him out yesterday, and I heard good reports for that. And uh, by the way, Pastor Trey is just knocking it out of the park. Uh, we are so excited to have him on our team. Uh, we had um, last Sunday night a big life. It's really the first big life since he got here. And, uh, and their team had really worked hard for it. But anyway, we had over 100 kids here on, on last uh, Sunday night. And uh, it was amazing. The worship was hot. The preaching was great. The, the fellowship was sweet. And uh, uh, there was just, was, and we had several uh, raise their hands in the commitment to uh, following Christ. So it was just a great, great week. Just so many good things happening. I, I, I finally feel like we're outside of COVID and, and, and uh, uh, just looking forward to, to some of the activities and the things we have. This summer's going to be great. I hope that you'll be telling others. I met several first time guests today, and it's always great to have guests with us in services. And thank you so much for being here. Well, this morning we're going to be back in the book of Galatians. Now, a lot of times people come expecting there to be a Mother's Day sermon on Mother's Day, a Father's Day sermon on Father's Day, and so forth. You know, if you do that with all of the different dates on the calendar and the church calendar, uh, before long you only have about 30 weeks left of the year where you get to do expositional study. So we don't necessarily honor, some years we do, 
and some years we don't. This is one of those years where we're going to stick right with our study in the book of Galatians. And so we're going to continue that uh, this morning in Galatians chapter 3, where we've already read. I love this book. It is so great. I want you to understand as we're going through this verse by verse that the first two or three, four chapters are very theological. They're laying a foundation. And by the way, this is really, really important. It's something that's missing in the Western and American church today and that many times we are so emphasizing the, the consumer concept of I go to church to get something practical for me. Now, again, I'm not against that because I believe the Bible is a very practical book that gives us things on how we should be living now. But it's also a book of theology. And if you never study theology and you only study the the application, what, what you have is the danger of eventually chasing applications that are not theologically sound. And so then you begin pursuing cultural shifts in light of the Scripture. But if you know the Scripture, then you interpret cultural shifts from the paradigm of truth. And so that's why teaching theology is so essential. It's essential not only in application, but it's it's essential in philosophy and and obviously theology. We want to know we know God. We want to know what His Word says. We want to know why we can have confidence in what we believe. Is it really real. Because if we don't believe it's really real, we'll adjust it for the rest of our lives so that it fits our preconceived notions, rather than shifting our notions, our thoughts, our applications to what is really real. So this is why it's important that we take the time and we study the theology behind the application, study the theology behind what we say we believe. That way you can have confidence in it, And then that way it also serves as this marker to keep us straight. In fact, the Bible is sometimes called the canon, and it's a closed canon. We have everything in it. They're not adding new books to the Bible. But the word canon literally means plumb line. And if you've ever installed plumbing or or, anything that requires a straight line, um, you know the plumb line is how you know what is vertical and what is horizontal because everything else is built on that. You don't want things rolling off your table whenever you put it on there. You want the floor to be perfect. You know, when, when you flush the toilet, you want to make sure it leaves your house, right? And, and that's important. That's why a plumb line is important. Well, when the scripture is called canon, it's saying this is the plumb line. This is how you know whether things are straight. This is how you know your life is going to function correctly. Because if you have the Word of God and you know the Word of God, then everything else falls into place as it should be. So we're in Galatians chapter 3, and this is a key passage. And, 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 so, and you know, as, as I was reading this this week, I got to, th- I got to thinking about why, why he was emphasizing this and why this was so important. And, you know, how many of you would say, I'm a germaphobe? Anybody else like that? Some of you? Yeah. I'm a, I'm a hardcore germaphobe. I, I don't know, long before COVID, which is kind of weird because I grew up on a farm, not exactly the most sanitary place on the planet, right? But, but maybe that's why. Maybe it's a reaction to that. But long before COVID, I was, I was a bit of a, a clean freak in various aspects of my life. Not every aspect, but um, in, in, in many. You know. Kids don't pay as much attention to such things as adults. It's a, to me, it's a sign of maturity that you, you, know, you start doing things like washing your hands before you go to dinner and making sure that your clothes don't have, you know, last night's uh, uh, dessert on them still. Um, And as I've grown older and as I've become more mature, it seems to have mattered more to me. You know, I remember the days when I had little kids and it was always an adventure as I was out shopping, like getting ready for Mother's Day. 
and somebody needed to visit the restroom when we were at the mall back in the days when you went to malls, right? But uh, I'd have one or two or three or four kids in tow. We'd be at the mall, and one of them would say, Dad, I need to go to the restroom. And, oh, great, because you know what that does. It's like hitting the dominoes. Everybody's got to go then, right? And so you take the kids into the bathroom, and as we were walking, I would start the prep because for me, uh, visiting a mall restroom is like the sixth circle of hell for Dante. I mean, just... It's just a scary place for me. And I'm like, so I would start as we're walking down the hall back through the labyrinth uh, to, to get to this, this place. And, 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 and I would say, okay, when we're going to the bathroom, don't touch anything, right? Don't touch anything. In fact, put your hands in your pockets. That's it. Everybody's going to walk in, put their hands in their pockets, and we'll figure out what to do once we get in there. But start with your hands in your pockets. I'd, I'd, I'd get in, and I was so freaked about the amount of germs in there. I'd go in and... and and start getting things going, you know, with multiple kids and so forth. And I'd turn around, and one would be rolling on the floor underneath the stalls. Another would be licking the doors, you know. You know, I, uh, And yet they were healthier than me. I don't, I don't understand it. But, you know, the, the, the idea of all these, these germs are going to wreck their life, and, and it's going to mess them up. And uh, i, I got to tell you that even to this day, at my age, um, I found, I've never found a toilet that I cannot flush with my foot, Okay. I can put Chuck Norris to shame when I have to. Um, and, and the reality is I've used a $75 silk tie to be able to open the door because who's the moron that designs bathroom doors that open in? I've never figured that one out. Aren't you so glad you came to church to get a lesson from the deep theology of the book of Galatians? But kind of went on a tangent there. But the, the, the reality is this. Um, a little germ will mess up your life. The wrong kind of mosquito that eats you or bites you will be a problem. The smallest infection can turn into something very serious very quickly. And we need to understand that Satan in his diabolical plan to separate us forever from God wants to pollute wants to infect, wants to diminish in any way that he possibly can the power of the blood of Christ for salvation. He wants to change and challenge and corrupt the gospel. And from the earliest days of the church and before, from the time that God said, I want to redeem you, it has been Satan's agenda to somehow and some way corrupt the gospel corporately and individually in the world and in our lives, if he can at all. In the passage that we read earlier this morning, and we're going to read again, frankly, Paul has given a passionate explanation of salvation by grace through faith, and he uses the example of the revered Abraham. There is no individual in all of Hebrew history that meant more to the Jewish people than Abraham. Abraham was the George Washington of the Jewish people. And in fact, that has spilled over into Christianity. When I was a kid, I don't know whether you remember, we used to sing a little song in Sunday school. Anybody remember singing, Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham. Remember that song? Why? Because Abraham 
was the guy that God gave the law to, the promise to, the covenant to, that said, as you move forward, there is hope as a people, as a planet for salvation. Now, it was alluded to before him. And, and, and certainly there was a way for salvation uh, for, for Adam and for, uh, for uh, Noah and for those that, that were early pre-Abrahamic. But make no mistake, the clarity that God provided in the special covenant relationship that he had with Abraham is a benchmark. It is a cornerstone of how God communicated the hope to mankind of the gospel of the Messiah. And so Paul said, if I'm going to defend, if I'm going to explain, if I'm going to help people understand the sound theology, let's go back to Abraham and let's talk about him. By the way, there's another thing that we see in this passage that's unique and easy to miss if you're not watching for it, and that is this that the authority that Paul used as he's discussing Abraham and as he's teaching uh, salvation uh, and, and soteriology, as he's teaching the importance of maintaining the purity of the gospel, is the Word of God. We, we, we read nine verses this morning and six times he's quoting Scripture in this passage. And folks, that is the authority that we have. And I want to make sure you understand that. It is not science. It is not experience. It is not majority opinion. It is not logic and rhetoric. The authority that you and I have in what we believe begins and ends with the Word of God. That's why the defense of Scripture is so important. Because if you don't understand why the Bible is not simply a collection of thoughts, writings, conglomerations of opinions and so forth of various men over time that somehow happened together. If you don't understand how we got our Bible and why it was put together the way it was, then you don't have the basis for understanding what you believe. And it's an essential that we know this. And again, why we go through the Bible and teach it. But in this passage, Paul sets out to make his case that not only should we have faith, but we should fight for the purity of our faith that is ultimately polluted whenever we inject works into salvation. The minute we go back to works, and in this case, it's called the law, the minute we go back to the law, our works, our efforts, our attempts at righteousness, we render the plan broken, cursed, powerless, and polluted. So Paul is dealing with the church at Galatia. Galatia has a theological problem. The theological problem is this, as it has continued to mature and grow and people are added, others have come back and they've come into the church and they're good people, they're respected people, they're people known in the community, they're educated people, they're people who have ties but they said, oh, this is so great. Isn't this is happening? What a great movement. We're seeing lives change. We're, we're seeing people re, returning to holiness and righteousness. And, and thank God for the, the message of, the, of, of, of this prophet Jesus and so forth. And, and let us have this synergy between the law and grace. How good it will be for us. Be circumcised. Keep the holidays. Follow the rituals and trust the prophet. It's what we need. And this message sounded appealing to some. 
Because I got to tell you, it was like a safety net. If something was off on this grace thing, at least I had the law. If I wasn't quite good enough, well, at least I was circumcised. Oh, if, 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 I, if I go a little bit astray, I mean, this is so new and everything, and at least I've, I've kept the law, I've kept the rituals, I'll be good enough. Maybe that big old scale thing will work out for me. And in doing so, Paul said, oh, 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 no, 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 no. You're licking the floor. You're messing it up. Because when you pollute the law, you pollute the gospel. And when you pollute the gospel, you render what was supposed to be a blessing, a curse. So let's go back and read the scripture again, okay? And I want you to read it with that in your head. I think it'll help you. And we're, we're going to kind of like meander through it for just a few moments. And then we're going to make some applications and we'll be finished, all right? So but, but let's, go, let's go back and let's read it. Now, remember what I always say. When God wants you to remember something, what does he do? He repeats it. All right? So I always go through and I look for the words that are frequently used in a passage that are repeated. And I usually circle them. I did both this week. I don't know if you can see this or not. I don't know if the camera can zoom in or whatever. I'm probably freaking everybody out in the back. But if you'll see, I put the scripture here. And when I, when I did it, here it comes. Oh, technology, don't you love it? All right, so you see, I got green, I got yellow, I got circles, and I got squares. And in doing so, I wanted the words to hop out to me. I wanted them to be able to, to know what is it that God's saying to me. So you kind of play along a little bit as, as we're doing this. Beginning in verse 6 of, of Galatians chapter 3. Just as, who's the key character we're talking about? Abraham. So that's an important name right here. Just as Abraham, quotation marks, believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So why is this in quotation marks? Because it's a quotation, all right? I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, um, a professor at Liberty, many of you know that, and this was the last week of, of our, our spring second term, and, and this is the weekend where I get flooded with term papers, flooded with term papers, just drives me nuts, you know, because I've only read these things about 10,000 times. So I know to look for things, and one of the things I look for is quotes without quotation marks, because that's called plagiarism. <laughs> All right? And, and that results in an unpleasant conversation. So why do we have this? Because we're giving credit to the original source. The original source of believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness is Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. This is the first of the six times in these nine verses that Paul's saying, hey, let's go back and remember what we know. Let's go back. Here's my source. And he gives a citation here from Genesis chapter 15. Then look, and, and, and here's what he said about Abraham. He believed God, and what was it that was counted to him as righteousness? Well, that's what we're going to find out. But believing was what had to be done. Did he say he obeyed the law and it was accounted to him as righteousness? Oh, no, that's not what he said. And that's important. He said, from the very beginning in the book of Genesis, Abraham believed God. And believing is essential to any obedience that comes afterwards. It changes the very nature of obedience. Because believing has to do with the effective, the, the thing that goes on in the heart. It can't be manipulated. It can't be forced. You can't force somebody to believe something. This is internal all right, so that's just verse 6. Look at verse 7. Know then that it, that it is those of faith. 
I circled faith because you're going to see it a lot. That is, those of faith who are the sons of, here's that name again, Abraham. So now we've got two words that we're seeing frequently. He said this, I want you to know, I want you to remember this. I want this to be significant to you. That those who were of faith were the sons of Abraham. So not only was it good for Abraham, but it was good for the subsequent generations. And the scripture, again, that's our authority, foreseeing that God would justify. Now that word justify is important because the word justify here is, is when, you, when you look at the Hebrew, it means this, count as righteousness. Count as perfection or count as fulfillment. So in other words, when God looks at you, the scripture makes sure that you understand that if you are like Abraham and believed God, that when God looks at you, he sees you as justified. He sees you as forgiven. He sees you as in alignment with him. And that's a key principle. He counts you as righteous. He counts you as one of his. I'll explain that a little bit more in just a moment. The Gentiles, here's again that word, by faith. The Gentiles, they said, well, why is he bringing up the Gentiles? Because Abraham was the father of the Jewish tradition. And so the Jews were always thinking, yeah, that's us, man. We're the, we're the chosen ones. We're the favored ones. We're the, we're the ones that God had in mind all along, and, and we're special. And, and, and Paul's saying, yeah, you're special, but so are the Gentiles because the plan that was given to the Jews was given also for the benefit of the Gentiles. In other words, the non-Jewish. Now, the Jews hated the Gentiles. I mean, racism is not new, Right? They hated the Gentiles. They called them dogs and pigs and all kinds of negative terms. Uh, they didn't want to be seen with them. They wouldn't fellowship with them. They, they were the enemy. They were the opposition. And so this is a radical concept that Paul's saying here. He said, you know that plan for Abraham? It was also a plan for not just the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. And how did the Gentiles get it? The same way the Jews did. By faith. Preach the gospel before him again to Abraham saying, uh-oh, quotes again, here we go. In you shall all the nations be blessed. All right, so there's two important things to notice about this. Three things, actually. Number one, that's a verse of Scripture found in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. Second thing that's important about that, all the nations. That's reemphasizing not just the Jews, but also the Gentiles. Here's the third thing that I think is really, really important. Notice the word there. It is the word blessed. Blessed. And here's where I want you to walk away from this morning with this phrase etched in your mind. It has always been. It is still. And it will always be God's desire to bless you. And from the very earliest parts of Genesis, throughout the very end of Scripture, we see it is God's desire to bless you. You do not live naturally in a state whereupon blessing should be what you anticipate. But God has a plan whereupon blessings will come your way. We lived in a fallen world, a broken world, a damned world. But even in the midst of all this mayhem, God has said, it's my desire to bless you. 
If you go through the book of Genesis and look over and over and over again, God uses the word bless, bless, bless. He wanted to bless Adam and Eve with children. He wanted to bless them with the garden. He wanted to bless them with, with everlasting life. He wanted to bless, 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 bless. And then they broke it. And still we see, look through the Psalms, look through the prophets. Over and over and over again, you see God's desire is to bless you. Now that's important. And we're going to come back to that in a little bit. But that's he's quoting scripture again, second time. So look in verse 9. So then, those who are of the law, whoa, 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 that's not what he said, is it? Those of you who do more good things than bad things, no, that's not what he says. Those of you who are members of your local Protestant church, nope, not what he says. He says, those of you who are, what is it? By faith, in faith, of faith. And what are they? They're blessed. You want blessing? It's about faith. It's not the purity of the gospel is built on a foundation of faith, not works. Along with, here we go again, who's that guy? Abraham. And what do we sometimes call him? The man of faith. You see the theme developing here? All right, now let's look in verse 10. For all who rely on, uh-oh, heavy music coming, on works of the law are under a curse. Okay, so let's just kind of pause there and stop. Remember this. What is the off, off, opposite of a blessing? It's a curse. You either bless somebody or you curse somebody. All right? So if the opposite of a blessing is a curse, the opposite of faith is the law. The opposite of believing is attempting to do it on your own. Works. You see the contrast that he's building here? Galatians is a letter of explanation of basic theology from Paul to the early believers. He's saying, watch out for those who are licking the floor, who are adding poison to the punch. Watch out for those who are adding works to faith. And in doing so, he again quotes scripture. For it is written, cursed. Again, the opposite of blessing is cursed. Be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of, which book are we talking about? The law. And do them. Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 26 is where he's quoting there. So again, he goes back to the word of God. And again, watch out for people who tell you things based on their opinion or their experiences and fail to mention the Word of God. There's a lot of people who call themselves pastors. There's a lot of guys on the internet. There's a lot of guys on TBN. There's a lot of people who write books that are in your local Christian bookstore will, telling you, will tell you that, 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 that it is God's desire for, for you to just, you know, keep working and He'll give you stuff and He'll give you blessings and the reason we believe or the reason we do things is so that God will pour out His... No, no, no. They've got this all polluted. They're licking the floor. This is about eternal life. This is about salvation. This is about believing God for eternal life so that we're no longer cursed. So he said, watch out for those who are thinking that we have to abide by all things written in the book of law and we have to do all those things because that's a curse, that's not a blessing. Look in verse 11. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. He said, if it's not just obvious to you that none of us are capable of keeping the law, let me quote some more verses to you. 
And he said, look and remember what the prophet Habakkuk said in chapter 2, verse 4. The righteous shall live by faith. Not the righteous shall live by the law. Not the righteous shall live by works. But the, light, the righteous shall believe they shall live by faith. But look in verse 12. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Again, Scripture, Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5. You can't live by the faith. I'm sorry, by the law. It's impossible. You're going to lie. You're going to cheat. You're going to steal. You're going to mess up. You're going to get angry. You're going to covet. The law was not given to us for our blessing, but it's rather a curse because when you and I look at the law and we look at ourselves, we look at everybody around us, we're like, why bother? There is no way. You've asked me to move a rock that cannot be moved. You asked me to climb a mountain that's way too high. There's no way that I can do this. And then you look at the law all the time and it constantly reminds me, you're damned. You're going to hell. You're going to die. There's no hope for you. You don't look at the law and say, oh, yes, all right. Man, I got this one in the bag. You don't say that. You look at the Ten Commandments. You look at the book of Leviticus. You look at the book of Deuteronomy. You look at the book of Exodus. You look at all these books of the law, and you look at them and you say, wow. And what does it do? It discourages you, it depresses you, and it defeats you. Why? Because that's always been Satan's objective. And God wanted you to see <laughs> there's none righteous, no, not one. You can't pull this one off, son. This is a problem. And so he goes on. He says, the law is not of faith. The one who does shall live for them. But look in verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse. There's that word again. Circle that one. Curse of the law. There's another repeated word. Now let's stop there for just a second because this is so key. Christ redeemed. That is such a rich word. When you go back to the Hebrew, because the word redeemed is the word that they used when a master paid the price and freed a slave. If you went up and saw a slave and you saw that they were working under bondage and the law and the oppression of slavery, the heaviness of slavery, and you walked up and said, how much for this slave? And the guy said, X number of dollars, and you wrote out a check. You pulled out your coin bag and you bought that and you said to the slave, you are now free. Go, go, you're free. Don't come work for me. You're free. When that happened, they would use this word right here. In other words, God freed you through faith from your bondage. You are free. You're free from the law. You're free from the condemnation, the doubt, the discouragement, and the defeat. You're freed from the curse. You have been redeemed from the curse of the law. And how did he do that? Look at what it says. He became a curse for us. He's the one who became the curse. And to remind us of that, he quoted Deuteronomy chapter 21 and 23. said, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. He became our curse. Jesus took upon himself the penalty of us all. Look in verse 14. So that in Christ Jesus, here's that wonderful word again, the blessing. And to whom was it promised? First to Abraham. Might come to even the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit. Capital S spirit. Who is that? That's God. 
God the Spirit. And then notice how he concludes this, through faith. Through faith. That's your theology lesson for this morning. When you understand this, not just here, but here, it is like a moment of victory, a moment of release, a moment when you, for the first time, understand what it means to be redeemed. You're freed from your guilt. You're freed from your inclinations. You're freed from your fear. You're freed from the bondage of sin and the fear that you'll never be good enough because Jesus became that curse for us. And when you understand that, things change. And I want to show you that as we conclude today. There's some things that you need to understand. The implications of this truth are very, very clear, and they're very, very real, and they're very, very important that we live out. The first thing is this. When you really understand what it means to live by faith, belief in what God has said, you will have a focus on behavior. I'm sorry, on belief rather than behavior. On belief rather than behavior. Every one of us has a choice. Are you going to focus on, I've got to be good enough. I've got to get to church. I've got to read my Bible. I've got to do these things. I've got to be good enough. I can't tell a lie. I've got to stay true to my vows. I've got, to, I've got to give 10%. I've got to, are you in that world where every time you look at God, you're thinking, oh, I messed him up again. Oh, he's mad again. I'm going to get a flat tire on the way to work. My kids are going to hate me. My wife's going to leave me. I'm getting fired. The house is going to burn down right now. If your view of God is based on your behavior, your relationship is going to be one of almost constant terror or resentment. Who wants a God that's always looking for a way to turn him into a crispy critter? Who wants a God where you're always flinching because you're afraid he's going to pop you one? That's what Satan wants you to do. Remember this. Satan always wants you to think thoughts that are unworthy of God. That's what he did with Adam and Eve, remember? He said, oh, you can't trust God. He's keeping good things from you. He doesn't mean what he says. Those are the original lies that he used to entice them to eat of the fruit. God's always trying to get you to think thoughts of God that are unworthy of God. And when you, need, when you feel yourself doing that, when you hear those words in your head, you need to stop them. Why? Because they're lies. And they're from the father of lies. Your standing before God is not because you're good, but because He's good. Your standing before God is not based on your behavior, but on your belief that Jesus paid it all. That His blood is sufficient. And that you have been adopted into His family. Those are the things that you focus on. If you find yourself thinking thoughts of God that are unworthy of God, he's angry, he's vengeful, he's merciless, he's a genocidal maniac, is what the atheists like to say. Well, here's the thing. You're describing a God, but he's not Jehovah. He's little g, Lucifer. That's his work, not God's work. And we need to call it with accuracy. Here's the second thing. 
When we compare works and faith, we have to decide whether we're going to have a reliance on self or reliance on the Savior and the Spirit of God. We have to, the Bible says, bring every thought into captivity. The battle of joyful Christian living sometimes is the battle of what you allow yourself to think about or believe. And here's the reality. Many of us live lives that were based on performance. And by the way, even as a Christian, I did this for years and it was miserable. I lived under a legalistic mentality that said, while I may be a child of God, he's still wanting to turn me into a crispy critter. He's still wanting to make my life miserable. And every time I don't, he's going to get me. And it was unworthy of the special relationship that God had purchased for me at Calvary. But you know what in the end of it was? It was all about me. I wanted to be better than everybody else. I wanted to be holier. I wanted to be more pious. I didn't miss Sunday school. I didn't miss church. I was there on Sunday night and Wednesday night. I read, I read my Bible every day. I prayed. I, did, I, I, tell, I told those about Jesus. I, 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 I dressed appropriately. and I, I, I wore a tie to church. And I didn't listen to that old nasty rock and roll music. And I, 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 I. Does that sound weird to you? Because it was. We just keep saying, God, look at me, look at me, look at how good I am. But God looks at him and he says, what are you trying to prove, dude? You're my son. I already paid the price. You're not my kid because you're good. You're my kid because I'm God. You're my kid because I love you and because you believe. Did you really believe? Then quit trying to act like it's you. That's childish. Have some faith. Act like you believe this stuff. So does that mean I can be over here and say, well, I believe God, so I'm going to live like the devil. I'm going to, no, no, no. <laughs> then you don't understand love. You don't understand liberty. Liberty comes with, from love and a sense of responsibility. And God, when I stop and think about all you've done for me, I want to do the right thing. I want to be holy as you are holy. I want to be listening to you. I want to be, I want to be in alignment with you because I don't want to mess this up. Just, just the sweetness of knowing you. Because I believe you are worthy. I believe you are God. I believe that you love me. I believe that your way is the best way. I believe these things. It changes my motivation from fear to faith. Third thing. I already gave it to you. Where is your commitment? Is your commitment to living in fear or a commitment to living in faith? And the reality is sometimes it's a little more convenient to live in faith. Or fear. It's a little more convenient to live in fear. I can remember there were some things when I was growing up as a teenager that when my friends would say, do you want to do this? I'd say, oh, no, my dad would kill me. Did you ever do that? You know. Oh, you want to go out drinking? Oh, no, man, if I did that, my dad would murder me in my sleep. All right? Do you want to go drag racing down on the blacktop? Oh, no, 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 no. If I did that, dad would take my car away forever. Now, in my head, I also knew that racing my car on the blacktop which I know that's old school, but I grew up in those days, all right? It was a good way to get killed, to blow an engine, to run off the road and into a tree. There's a lot of bad things that happened when people were racing on a bike, but it was just easy for me to say, oh, my dad would kill me. But it, if I'd been mature, if I'd been an adult about it, I would say, no, I'm not an idiot. I don't want to buy a new car because I blew the engine. I don't want to kill myself at 16. I don't want to run off into the road and murder somebody in my front seat. I'm not going to do that. It's not the right thing to do. But instead, I used fear as my replacement. I don't want to get a ticket. I don't want to go to jail. 
The bottom line is this. What do you use as your excuse for living the way you do? Is it out of fear or is it because you love Jesus? Is it because you believe? You believe he's the son of God. You believe he wants to give you the best in life. You believe that his word is true and that it matters. So we have to have a commitment to fear and faith. Number four, and dependence upon doing, or you'll have a dependence on believing. So here's the question. Is your life reflective of someone who says, if I do, I'll live, or is it reflective of someone who says, I live because I believe? I live because I believe. If you know God, and if you believe in him, and if you trust him, It'll change how you view everything else in your life. And I don't care whether you're 12 years old and going into middle school or you're 22 and you just graduated from UNCC this last weekend or whether you're 32 and you're climbing the corporate ladder or you're 62 and you see things winding down. We need to ask ourselves, why are we doing the things we're doing? Is it because we believe? Or is it because doing validates us, makes us feel in control, makes us feel powerful? It's our insurance policy just in case this belief thing isn't all that it's supposed to be. And when your dependence is upon doing rather than believing, you're missing out a huge blessing in your relationship with God. Which brings me to number five. We have to look for an attitude of entitlement versus an attitude of gratitude. You see, because when my attitude or when 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 my attitude says, I'm a good person, I work hard, God's pleased with all my efforts, it's kind of like, so where's mine? Where's my blessing, God? Where's my reward? Hey, aren't you answering my prayers? What's going on here? We have an expectation. We put in the coin. We press the button. Where's the product? This celestial vending machine that we've turned God into isn't living up to his end of the bargain. But rather, if we're over here and we say, you know what? I'm a sinner and I'm a mess. I'm totally depraved. And there is no hope in me on my own. But Christ redeemed me. He purchased me and set me free. And he took all my filthiness on himself and let me loose. And then he said, and now I'll make you a part of my family. Through my spirit, I'll adopt you. And now I'm your heavenly father. You're joint heirs with Jesus. And you know what I want to say? Thank you. Thank you. I can rest. Thank you. I can trust. Thank you. I'm accepted. Thank you. I'm really free. When we have an attitude of entitlement, we rob God of the glory and blessing of the immense price he paid for our freedom. The next one is association that's built on rules or relationship. Is your life built on checking off? Or is it built on, this is my father? Huge difference. 
It's a spirit of condemnation versus a spirit of conviction. Many people talk to me about this and they struggle. I just feel like God's angry at me. I feel like God's mad at me. I feel like, I feel like, I feel like, and notice the word feel there. And they feel condemned. Understand this. When you trust Christ, your relationship with God fundamentally changes and he no longer treats you and sees you as a sinner He sees you and treats you as a son. And there's a difference. There's a big difference. You are his. And as us is the same, oh, we're all God's children. Not true. We're all God's creation. But we're not all God's children. The Bible warns it said, some of you are the sons of Satan, the children of the devil, Belial. But to those who believe, to them gave he the power to become what? The sons of God. So just because it looks cool on a bumper sticker doesn't make it true. All right? We're not all God's children. But we can be if we trust him and believe. And at that moment, you no longer have to feel condemnation. But you may feel conviction, and you should feel conviction. I remember a time when I was just ranting and raving at home and so forth. My wife said something, you know, trying to get me to calm down. And I snapped at her. You know, I know you guys never do that, but sometimes I do. I'm, I'm a gem at home, believe me. I'm just a joy to be around at times. But, uh, and she looked at me and she goes, hey, 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 would you talk to the guys at work the way you just talked to me? <laughs> you know, every once in a while your wife just lays a little nugget out there that's so profound and so real that you can't even argue. You just, you just kind of like melt. You're right. <laughs> You're right, honey. I'm sorry. You got me on that one, that's for sure. Now, was she condemning me? No, she didn't threaten to leave me. She didn't tell me she didn't love me. She just told me that wasn't acceptable. And she told me that because she loved me, and she also knew that I loved her enough I wouldn't want to treat her that way. I wouldn't want to treat her ugly. I wouldn't want to treat her disrespectfully. She just put me in alignment with what she knew about me already. When God convicts you, he's wanting to put you into alignment with what he knows. You're his child. He loves you. So stop it. <laughs> Rephrase it. Change it so you're in alignment. He's not doing it because he wants to divorce you, to kick you out of the home. He's doing it because he loves you enough to speak the truth to you. Which brings me to number eight. It's a condition of slavery or liberty. Do you want to live in the bondage that comes with works that says, if I mess this up, I could stand before God and realize, oh, if I had just did this instead of this, I might have made it into heaven. Do you want it to be all on you? I don't. That's bondage. That's slavery. Because I can never be good enough to get that freedom I desire so much. But when we trust Christ, when we believe, when we listen to the promise that God gave Abraham, and we look at the law and realize how harsh it is, we can walk in freedom, walk in liberty. We won't walk in perfection, but we can walk in joy. And that's the choice that God gives us. And then finally, these last two are important. The comparison remains that it's an outcome of certain death or an outcome of eternal life. Because if you're on this side and you're believing works, the Bible says, for by grace are you saved through faith and not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works. If you want the gift of eternal life, 
You've got to abandon your ability to save yourself. There is none righteous, no, not one. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So there has to be this point where you say, I'm going to trade certain death for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have what? Eternal life. Eternal life. There's your choice. Certain death or eternal life. Works or belief. And from that moment forward, you decide whether you're going to live in a position of defeat or victory. Because the fact is, every day you're going to sin and you're going to be defeated. And Satan's going to exploit that in your life and he's going to try to get you to give up and quit because you cannot be good enough. And every day is a fresh day for Satan to remind you that you're not good enough. But if you trust Christ, if you believe, here's the other side of it. You walk in victory. Not today, Satan, and not ever. Not ever. I walk in victory. You can't dig up my past. You can't damn me, condemn me, guilt me. You can't defeat me, discourage me, depress me. Because I don't fight for victory. That's what they do. I fight from victory. That's what he did. And that is the story of the pure gospel that Paul was saying to the church at Galatia. Why in the world do you want to lick the floor by going back to circumcision, going back to the rules? You can walk this many steps on the Sabbath. You can tie this rope with this hand, but not that hand. You can do this, but you can't do that. You can eat this, but you can't eat that. You can say this, but you can't say that. You can write this, but you can't write that. Why would you go back to that? You're nuts. When the purity of the gospel is right here, and all you need to do is really believe it. Really believe it. And that's my invitation to you this morning. Where are you walking? If you say to me, Dan, I... I, I, I I've never seen it this clearly. Then the Holy Spirit's doing that. I didn't do that. The Holy Spirit's doing that. He's saying, see, here's your choice. And now you have a decision to make, whether you'll believe or whether you can keep trying to do it on your own terms. And here's my message to you. Trust Christ. Believe in him. It's what you need.